What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading provider in ABA services across the country. The last several weeks, we've been really focused on COVID-related content and helping you get through this challenging time. We wanted to make sure we got back uh, to some of our regularly scheduled content and mix that in as well. So recently, I sat down with Dr. Ruth Ann Rayfeld and Dr. Jonathan Tarbox to discuss their newest publication, Applied Behavior Analysis of Language and Cognition, Core Concepts and Principles for Practitioners. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Rayfeld is now serving as Assistant Chair and Professor in the Applied Behavior Analysis Program at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology at the Chicago campus. She has published over 100 articles and book chapters, most of which have been focused on language interventions for persons with developmental disabilities. Dr. Jonathan Tarbox is the founder and director of, Mas of the Master of Science in Applied Behavior Analysis Program at the University of Southern California. He's also the editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed journal Behavior Analysis in Practice, and he's the director of research at First Steps for Kids. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Tarbox, Dr. Rayfeld, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you guys jumping in. Absolutely. Happy to be here. You're very welcome. Thrilled to be here. Thank you. So uh, for both of you, can you give our listeners a brief background on some of the research you're currently working on in your primary area of focus? Uh, yeah, so I'm the uh, director of the Master of Science in Applied Behavior Analysis program at the University of Southern California and the editor-in-chief of the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice. And um, I'm also the director of research at First Steps for Kids, a clinic out here in California. And um, my main areas of research are uh, in the application of acceptance and commitment training to mainstream applied behavior analytic services in the areas of autism, health and fitness. Um, and also now my newer line of research is on applications of applied behavior analysis to addressing uh, the topics of uh, diversity and social justice. And what about you, Dr. Rayfeld? Can you give us the same, a little bit of background? Absolutely. Uh, so I'm a professor here in the Applied Behavior Analysis Program at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology in Chicago. And um, prior to joining this institution, I was a professor at Southern Illinois University, um, likewise in the Behavior Analysis and Therapy Program at that institution. And I've um, worked with many, many master's and doctoral students over the years. Um, my research has focused both on what we call relational responding and also acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training, um, primarily of populations of children and adults with autism spectrum disorder. Um, earlier in my career, I focused quite a bit on implementing curricula 
focused on promoting generative repertoires um, in young children with autism spectrum disorders, as well as adults with autism spectrum disorders, um, as well as intellectual disabilities, focusing on people who might have very, very limited verbal repertoires. Um, so the curricula was really sort of focused on enhancing language um, in, in people who, who lacked it or could really benefit from alternative or augmentative forms of communication. More recently, I've been applying acceptance and commitment training to um, working with young adults um, who are very verbally sophisticated and um, facing a lot of challenges that um, adulthood brings about with regards to independent living and um, community-based employment, um, and also applying ACT to the caregivers and the staff working the front lines with those populations. It's so fascinating to me that, um, you know, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy ACT has been around for 20-plus years, but I feel like it's just now kind of getting its it's opportunity to really shine in, in the in the field of applied behavior analysis. It's at every conference, it's headlining, there's a workshop at every single one that I was looking at. Is there a reason that that's coming up now as opposed to five years ago or, or am I, like what, what's changed in our field to make this such an opportunity today? Well, uh, one explanation for that is I believe that um, more and more behavior analysts are working with populations of individuals who um, are well beyond the ages of early intervention. A few decades ago, many behavior analysts uh, were focused on, you know, in-home work or in-clinic work with very young kiddos, and the focus was very much on intensive early intervention. And it still is, but the years have gone by, and we, we now have um, very large populations of adolescents and, of course, adults and even aging adults now um, who are sort of at different points in their life where they need to think about building other skill repertoires. And that's exactly where ACT comes in. Um, the other thing I think that, that is happening, you know, just has to do with a little bit of the broadening in the diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorders over the years. You know, we now know that um, people with very sophisticated cognitive abilities or intellectual abilities in the normal range can be diagnosed with autism. And, and these are a group of people who behavior analysts do have the tools and the technology to serve. Um, and prior to, you know, maybe a decade or so ago, we, we didn't really have tools or the know-how at that time for addressing, you know, kind of more complex reasoning skills, emotional repertoires. Um, and it's also the case that I think applied behavior analysis is, is taking a little bit more of an interest in, in what Skinner called the world within the skin. So we're a little bit more willing today to accept that a person's private, unobservable psychological experience is very much part of what goes on with their behavior when they're interacting with others. So those are sort of my thoughts on on why we are where we are today. That's great. Dr. Yeah, Tarbox, you were going to expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with all the above. And um, and to piggyback on that, uh, I think, um, you know, ACT was originally developed by behavior analysts, 
but for use by clinical psychologists. And so it was communicated in terms that made sense and was consumable by the general psychology population. So most of the terms in the ACT literature don't sound behavior analytic, uh, and that was on purpose. The, the, the idea was dissemination, um, even though it was all based on a behavior analytic um, conceptual analysis of rural government behavior and private events decades ago. It was communicated in a way that would be uh, easily disseminated to general psychology, um, and that was enormously successful, resulting in hundreds of uh, randomized control trials, uh, randomized control trials being published in peer-reviewed journals showing that it works to treat um, sort of traditional uh, problems of psychopathology, uh, things like, you know, anxiety, depression, um, things like that. Um, and then it really wasn't until, I think you're right, about the last five years that behavior analysts started to say, well, okay, hang on a second. Let's get back to the roots of ACT, which was behavior analysis from the very beginning, decades ago, and let's uh, address some of these problems that Ruthann were, was just uh, just mentioning, and let's do it from a purely behavior analytic perspective. And so behavior, anal behavior analysts started to take the ACT literature and, and say, let's translate this into um, purely behavior analytic principles, um, and let's talk about which pieces of this can be adapted and adopted into mainstream ABA practice, um, and which pieces maybe need to be changed or which pieces need to be left to uh, more purely uh, clinical psychology um, and social work and other areas of mental health. Um, and so, you know, that began probably, yeah, probably about five years ago, a little more than that. Um, groups like actually Ruth Ann's uh, research group was one of the earliest to, to publish studies on ACT inside of mainstream ABA. Mark Dixon's uh, lab also publishing studies on that. Um, and now several, several other labs are, are following suit, including mine. Um, but I, I think at the core, uh, as soon as people started to talk about ACT in behavior analytic uh, venues at at the ABAI convention, for example, and, and ACT workshops that were specifically for behavior analysts. And as soon as it was described in a way that made it clear that this is actually part of our science, it came from the science of behavior analysis to begin with, um, and this is actually where it belongs, um, it gave behavior analysts an invitation to uh, open up a little bit and to realize that the ACT work touches us where we care the most. Uh, it hits us in our values, and it, and it gives us a context to not only have a hardcore science of learning and a science of, of, uh, of motivation and, and learning like we have in behavior analysis, um, but also include private events, also include the head and the heart, to speak loosely, um, in that science to, to create a more comprehensive science, which was really always Skinner's dream from the 1940s on. Um, so I think people are, are seeing that it's useful, uh, they're hitting them where they're, they're hitting them in the area where they really care uh, about making a difference um, and creating a more comprehensive science. And, uh, and so it's just really gained momentum. So now five years ago, there was just a handful of behavior analysts doing this. Now there's right. been several thousand people trained at these boot camps and workshops. Um, and now it is becoming uh, pretty close to being a mainstream part of uh, applied behavior analysis. Yeah, I think more and more it actually is a mainstream. I, mean, I can't say it is yet, but uh, it's definitely getting close to that because, you know, in our organization, a lot of folks have gone to workshops, boot camps, uh, you know, conferences specifically focused around ACT, and I think it's become such a part of the normal conversation. Um, you know, it's great to see. I think it touches on a lot of those topics that historically had been 
I don't want to say taboo, but just not as uh, not as uh, welcomed, I guess. Um, doesn't align with what yeah. Our, I just wasn't uh, clear how we could address private events uh, and still maintain our scientific foundation in behavior analysis. And the ACT and relational frame theory work uh, gives us that ability to do that. And actually, just to plug uh, Dr. Rayfeld's chapter, uh, if if you want to know if something is behavior analysis or not, like mainstream applied behavior analysis, well, what do you do? You open the Cooper, Heron, and Heward book, right? So if right. you take a look at the new <laughs> the new edition of that book, there's a chapter by Ruth Ann and Tom Critchfield on uh, relational frame theory and ACT. So there you go. Great, great. Um, and so recently you, you two were a part of a team who uh, created the Applied Behavior Analysis of Language and Cognition, Core Concepts and Principles for, for Practitioners. Um, what prompted the writing of this, this book and this, this culmination of information? So I published a book over 10 years ago um, from the same publishing company called Derived Relational Responding Applications for Learners with Autism and Other Developmental Disorders um, that is heavily based on um, language training, um, theories of language, including relational frame theory, Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior, and uh, Horn and Lowe's naming hypothesis. And one of the interests of our team of editors is sort of, was sort of to provide a more contemporary or an update of some of that material, but then broadening it to some degree as well to include um, this information on ACT, um, to also include strategies for building other sorts of covert repertoires such as problem solving and reasoning skills. Um, But given that all of the editors are involved at different institutions of higher education, um, we not only sort of uh, are a part of the world of practice, but we're also familiar with, um, you know, curricular guidelines and a lot of what's available out there for teaching and training students. And we knew that the market was really lacking in any sort of a compilation that could be used in a graduate or even an advanced undergraduate level training course um, to help train and teach the practitioners and academicians of tomorrow in kind of, you know, the last 10 years of really cutting edge experimental and applied research focusing on, you know, the topics we're talking about, psychological flexibility, um, values and committed action, complex verbal behavior, um, covert behaviors such as problem solving. And so that was really our main intention to sort of help move the field forward so that we're a step closer to creating that comprehensive science that Jonathan mentioned um, by creating a text that would include the the leading um, researchers um, in the field, all of whom are also sort of um, engaged with and very aware of the real world of behavior analytic practice so that we could kind of come up with this volume um, relevant for the applied behavior analysis of language and cognition. So that was really sort of our goal, take us a step step closer to establishing that comprehensive science um, and prepare the behavior analysts of tomorrow so that, you know, they would be a part of that. That's great, and that's so that's so needed. I mean, uh, I think it's it's valuable that uh, any graduate program, we go into the history and we look at, 
how our field started and we look at, you know, Skinner's work and we start at the beginning, but I think we also need to continue to push that forward. And, and if we stop putting out research and if we stop conducting research and telling people what we found or what worked or what didn't, um, I think then we stop progressing as a field and then we become stagnant. So I love that that right. was kind of the, that was a big part of the push was just to continue to give the science and, and expand on what we have for, for the next the next round of clinicians that are coming out of grad school. Yeah, that's very much the case. You know, and it, uh, uh, the way I like to look at it is it's not so much the case that um, whatever we studied and learned um, a few decades ago didn't work, per se, or what, what we studied and learned four decades ago didn't work, per se. It's just more of right. a matter of progressing and building on ideas and, and right. continuing to move forward. I mean, uh, a comprehensive science of behavior is a is a pretty big goal, and, and to do that, you know, we have to build upon one another's ideas and, and innovate and take things in new directions. And that doesn't mean that the content from 40 years ago or 20 years ago is gone or dead. It, it's very much still a part of um, what we're doing. We're just progressing and building on. Right. And I think it goes back to a point you made a, a couple of minutes ago that, um, you know, a lot of our early intervention clients from 20 years ago are young adults or or they're adults now and they have a different set of needs they have a different set of skills they have a different set of lives they're doing very different things than they were when they were three years old Um, and so we need to make sure that we're continuing to evolve so we can not just be for this one you know uh one subsection of a subsection of the community, it's we can be a lot to a lot of different people. Right, right. That's a great way to way of putting it, I think. Thank you. Um, Dr. Tarbox, I have a question for you. Um, sure. You know, there are multiple chapters, and, and we talked a little okay. bit about um, how the core audience for this, this, uh, this book is really clinicians and, and graduate-level students. What are some things that we can highlight for our parent listeners about the skills that that are outlined in this book? What are some things that they may want to know that's important to them? Sure, yeah. So, you know, um, I think the uh, autism ABA parent community is a really, really special community. Um, And it's, I think, really distinguished by how astute and how passionate and how um, hardworking and dedicated the community is. And so I love when... uh, (laughs) when a BCBA holds a meeting with a parent and the parent actually calls the BCBA out on their knowledge. And hopefully they do it in like a you know, polite <laughs> and friendly and constructive way, but they actually ask really tough questions. Like, have you learned about this area of research or what, you know, what body of theory is your intervention based on? Or how, you know, are you taking into account Skinner's verbal operance and also relational frame theory? Um, have, you, have you heard of acceptance-based or ACT-type strategies? special thing to see, and I'm not sure that that's common everywhere, but um, we really do have really well-educated parents in our, in our community. Um, and so I think for, for parents who sort of, um, you know, take that charge and they really take the time to uh, go above and beyond sort of what the standard um, sort of recommended parent resources are, and they really want to sort of geek out on the science of it, um, this, this book would be really interesting. Again, they're not the target audience at all. The target audience for this book is um, – uh, graduate students in graduate programs in behavior analysis. Um, in fact, uh, sort of uh, the idea is first you read the white book and then you read this book. This is sort of like the next sort of the unofficial sequel. 
uh, to the Cooper <laughs> book. Um, we did not get permission to say that, so don't sue us. Um, but, uh, uh, and so anyway, so um, parents, I think the, the draw for parents is um, just take a look at the table of contents and read the list of topics and ask yourself, are these things that I would care about my child learning? Um, and I think the answer is pretty obvious. So we've got stuff like complex verbal behavior, which just means like complex language and cognition and thinking and talking. Um, of course, it's super critical. We've got observational learning. Uh, we've got generative responding, which sounds really fancy, but what it means is when you learn uh, a few examples, you're able to figure out new examples. And so a little bit of teaching generates a lot of learning, super critical. Um, relational frame theory is the, is, is the uh, complex uh, relational operants that underlie pretty much all of complex human language and cognition. So is it critical to autism intervention? Absolutely. It's what makes it work once you get past basic man's intact. Um, we've got uh, rule-governed behavior, understanding and creating your own rules, problem-solving, um, implicit cognition and social behavior. Um, and perhaps most of most interest to parents would be the chapter on perspective taking, empathy, and compassion. So a lot of people think of these higher order, quote unquote, cognitive abilities as uh, sort of out of the realm of applied behavior analysis. But of course, we know from Skinner that if it involves stuff that people do, it involves behavior and it involves learned behavior. And so these skill areas can be strengthened. Uh, and in order to do it effectively, you've got to understand how the behavior works. And um, basic behavioral principles get you a decent ways, and then you got to add on some relational frame theory and stimulus equivalence uh, once you start getting into more complex verbal operants. And so, um, so this, that's where this book takes you. That's the purpose of this book is to get you into those more advanced um, skill repertoires. And I think parents who are concerned about their children learning the more advanced skills, you know, beyond the basic uh, manding, tacting, sharing, turn-taking, things like that, more advanced uh, uh, verbal and cognitive skills, um, that, that's the purpose of this book, is to give behavior analysts the tools uh, to be able to understand and plan for and, and teach those higher-order skills. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think it's really great for, for the parents that are listening Talk to your clinicians, talk to your staff, talk to your BCBAs, uh, find out what it is that they're thinking and, and really build that relationship. I think it comes down, a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, what's working at home, what's working in the community, what's working at school, and how can we build, what's the, what are the skill sets we need to build some of these higher level skills? You know, you talked about perspective taking and empathy and compassion. I think a lot of people historically have said, oh, yeah, that's, that's other stuff. That's not, that's not my BCBA, but it really is. And so for the parents who are listening, I encourage you to make sure that you're doing your own research, make sure that you're knowing uh, as much as you can so that when it comes time to advocate for your son or daughter, you can do that in a way that's, um, you know, like Dr. Tarbox mentioned, a very positive way that really builds a good, a good sense of uh, community and also builds a good program for, uh, for your son or daughter and your family. Um, with that, uh, can you give us, Dr. Tarbox, can you give us a little bit of uh, the perspective taking, empathy, and compassion chapter? That one stood out to me as, um, as a really exciting chapter, and I really I, I can't wait to dive into that. Um, was there something in that, in that section that stood out to you as something you learned, or, was that, um, or were you already a little bit familiar with that? That chapter. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you a couple nuggets from that. Um, first of all, it's authored by Carmen Luciano's group. 
Um, Dr. Luciano is uh, one of the absolute most incredible godmothers of behavior analysis in terms of being there at the beginning. She actually studied with B.S. Skinner. Um, and in terms of really ushering in our science to the new, uh, the newest sort of most cutting edge areas of research, and so she's done really, really important research on, on ACT, and uh, really interesting research on perspective taking and um, analogies, metaphors, things like that. Um, and so we're really privileged to grab her um, as an author, and we really appreciate her contribution. Um, she's one of the leaders in behavior analysis in the country of Spain. Um, and, yeah, I would say, like, the basic take-home point of the chapter on perspective, empathy, and compassion is that uh, it's not just a brain mechanism. Like, is, is your brain necessary for, you know, perspective-taking, empathy, and compassion? Of course it is. And your brain's necessary for everything else we do, too. Um, but it's, it's a learned behavior. It's not necessarily a personality trait. You can treat it as that if you want, but if you want to actually help someone with it, it makes sense to treat it as learned behavior. Um, and the, the core sort of behavioral repertoire um, at the heart of, of that uh, area of functioning is called deictic relating, which is an awkward term, but it just means um, responding to the relation between oneself and others. So it's just a, you know, a fancy piece of jargon for perspective taking, but it's not um, just a concept. There's actual behavioral repertoires involved in it, and those behavioral repertoires can be um, taught through multiple examples. Uh, you can teach them until you see generalization to untrained examples. And so you can work on understanding other people's uh, perspectives, what they can see here, uh, so on. You can work on understanding other people's intentions, um, other people's emotions, and how they could be different from one's own. Um, understanding the causes of other people's emotions and how that is, can be entirely different from one's own. So, you know, if something happens that makes me happy, that same exact event could make you sad, right? You could have completely different preferences or a different learning right. history. Uh, right. And so, so this is stuff like, you know, what you wish we all learned in kindergarten and first and second grade. <laughs> and when everything goes right, this is what humans learn, right? Um, but for a lot of folks on the spectrum, they have challenges in, in developing these skill repertoires. And guess what? A lot of folks who aren't on the spectrum have challenges <laughs> in developing these repertoires too. Um, and, so, uh, and so really uh, this chapter is an attempt to bring the science of learning and the science of behavior analysis to a really complex but really, really important area of human functioning that frankly can make the difference between um, a life that's worth living and a life uh, that's cold and, and, and disconnected. And really, like right now, more than ever in this particular moment, we need human connection. And we need people to reach out, put themselves in other people's shoes, um, and, uh, and offer something, offer love, offer compassion and connection. Um, and this chapter helps people understand that whole area of functioning from a scientific perspective and to do so in a way that will actually help them uh, encourage these skills and, and teach them. I like that. I'm just always curious that, you know, I you you two are really uh, leaders in our field and leaders in our science and continuing to push out uh, great research. And I'm always curious it, as um, what stood out to you and, and what was something that you were either surprised by or something that you had always kind of felt that is now proven or, or um, just something that was maybe like an aha moment, uh, for, lack of a, for lack of a better term, in any of these chapters. Because for me, it's uh, there were 4,000, I think. <laughs> and so Aww. I'm just always curious as to, you know, kind of your perspective on that. Um, well, Chapter 14 is on problem solving. And 
This honestly is one of my favorite chapters um, because the focus of this chapter is, is, like I said, on addressing uh, the kind of behavior that years ago behavior analysts would have been scared to death to talk about. But um, it presents actually some very interesting protocols that have been implemented to try to shape up problem-solving repertoires um, with a lot of potential utility. Um, And so that, honestly, is one of my favorites. I also really like the chapter on observational learning a lot. Behavior analysts have known about observational learning for many years, um, but I think we sort of forget that that's something that we can sort of capitalize upon, that even even very young children, um, I've worked with individuals with severely limited verbal repertoires and extremely, extremely low intellectual functioning, but we've been able to arrange contingencies so that they acquire new skills from observing others. Um, and I think, I think that's also a repertoire that we sort of forget about, um, yet it is a process that we can capitalize upon, a learning process that we can capitalize upon when we're talking about um, procedures for generating new skills, procedures for producing overarching um, response classes. Um, and observational learning is a pretty good example of that. So those, those are a couple chapters that um, I sort of like to give a shout out to. Great. And I think, you know, to your point about observational learning, I think, Right now, everyone is sort of accessing, uh, you know, therapeutic services in a various in various ways. A lot of people are using telehealth or um, video conferencing to sort of uh, get their needs met. And I think observational learning is a great way for um, for people to be presenting opportunities for their son or daughter to learn. Can you give us a little bit more context about ways that families can be using or ways that clinicians can be using observational learning in their programming today? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, well, there's there's a couple different ways that it could take, it, different forms that it could take. Um, one is to present skills in sort of a group instruction format, and you know this is sort of an economic and efficient teaching procedure whereby, <clears throat> rather than working one on one with one individual, I'm going to work in a you know, with a dyad or a, a triad of individuals mm-hmm. and arrange a contingency for each of them to watch one another's instructions. So I'll maybe do one trial with one child and then turn to the next child and, and do another trial and sort of go around that way. And then what we might do is then test, evaluate to see um, which of the kids have actually acquired the skills that they might have observed the other kids learning. Um, and so that's, that's one strategy. The other strategy that I really like and I've done um, with siblings in a home environment and then I've also done in adult treatment settings just to try to kind of increase social interactions amongst individuals too is to have a, a person who's kind of considered the master, if you will, um, the, the, right. the, the person who's already acquired or mastered some skill. And then they sort of serve as the model for the person who's learning or in the position of acquiring the skill. And this can be done with, um, you know, daily living skills. We've, we've done it in adult day treatment settings with a variety of daily living tasks, um, simple food preparation kinds of skills, um, things like that. I've also done it in um, early childhood environments with, with pairs of, of children with autism spectrum disorder. The, the key is, to arrange a contingency for observing, 
make that uh, that that person who's displaying the skill, you know, the master, if you will, make sure that they are a conditioned reinforcer. And a lot of times they are because, you know, for a lot of individuals with um, developmental disabilities or, or, you know, children, they would much rather watch a peer um, or a friend do something right. than sit all the time working with a parent or an adult or a graduate student. So, you know, that's one advantage. You've got a built-in conditioned reinforcer with that, that peer, sibling, or friend. Um, and then two, supplant it with some sort of contingency for, for really observing. And, and you might be sort of surprised at, uh, you know, the new repertoires, the new skills that an individual might, might come to acquire. So those are kind of two ways, kind of more of a, a group instruction where everybody's being taught and everybody's watching each other, or um, or you have somebody who's who's kind of like the model. Um, the neat thing is, is I what, what I like about this, um, and I've seen working with you know people with pretty severely limited verbal repertoires, and also you know highly sophisticated um, verbal repertoires but people who might be more limited in their social interactions is it's, it's also a great way to sort of uh, get some of those social interactions going on the side too, by arranging for people to learn this way, you know, cause now they're, now they're, now they're watching, now they're interested in each other. So another benefit. Right. So, so there's the social interaction of being able to see a peer or a sibling kind of sort of model a task. Then there's, you know, the built-in sort of the time they have together, right? One person getting an opportunity to have, <clears throat> excuse me, a successful modeling experience, right? So I get to be a, a helper sibling or a helper friend. Um, that's positive. And then the flip side of being able to see up here and, and have that person be a condition reinforcer. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I know with a lot of families, sometimes, um, you know, there's – sometimes struggle around around those siblings you know how to how to make sure they don't feel like they're missing out on the attention um how you know how can they be kind of a proactive part of of their brother or sister's programming um and so i've always sort of loved the idea of trying to include siblings where you can um empower them to kind of be part of the instruction and like you said it kind of makes them a role model that's proactive and and, you know, might, uh, might hopefully build up some stronger social relationships um, between siblings as, as well. That's great. That's great. I love that. Thank you. Thank you both so much, Dr. Tarbox and Dr. Rayfield, for, for jumping in today. Your book, Applied Behavior Analysis of Language and Cognition, Core Concepts of Principles for Practitioners, is available on Amazon. Uh, where else can we find you? Dr. Tarbox, where can we find you and your other research uh, so people can check out my uh, my uh, master's programs uh, website. Uh, if you just Google USC ABA, uh, you'll find us there. It talks about what we do in our master's program and some of our research. And, um, yeah. Great. And, Dr. Rayfeld, what about for you? How can people find you and stay in touch with you? I'm here at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology in the Applied Behavior Analysis Department um, here in Chicago. Excellent. Perfect. Well, thank you both again so much for being here today. Uh, Stay healthy and stay safe. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you again for tuning into this week's episode of All Autism Talk. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Rayfeld and Dr. Tarbox. A couple of takeaways for me from this episode 
Um, I really enjoyed our conversation about acceptance and commitment training. I really think that that's becoming more and more prevalent in conferences and in our field as a whole. And I think that that's something we should all be paying attention to and, and really including in our repertoire of, of skills as we start to program for our families. I really enjoyed our conversation about uh, private events and what Skinner calls the world within skin. I like that quote. That really stood out to me. And then at the end, when Dr. Rayfeld gave us some great tips about observational learning, I think that's something we can all be using right now, particularly when we're uh, in home and accessing therapy via telehealth. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. Uh, send us an email or give us a show suggestion at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com. And you can also subscribe and rate us wherever you access your podcasts. Thank you all. Stay safe, stay healthy. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.